HHW presents X-Men Days of Future Past by the Legion of Dudes Mutation, it is the key to our evolution. It has enabled us to evolve from a single-celled organism into the dominant species on the planet. This process is slow, normally taking thousands and thousands of years. But every few hundred millennia, evolution leaps forward. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of... Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. The whole world out there is full of people that hate and fear you. Magneto's right, there's a war coming. You sure you're on the right side? It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Are mutants dangerous? We're not what you think. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. We must know who they are. And above all, we must know what they can do. Welcome to a half hour wasted presents the Legion of Dudes, X-Men, Days of the Future Past. I'm Russell Latham, and I'm joined with my fellow mutants and altered humans, the Legion of Dudes. Guys, introduce yourselves. How you doing? This is Ken Morgan. This is Adam Reed. Hey, this is Adam Umack. This is Jim Deeds. And this is John. All right. Well, this evening we are going to be doing the landmark two-issue series of Uncanny X-Men from 1981, The Days of Future Past, which took place in Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142. This, this uh, series is, a, is kind of special for me. This 141 and 142 marked the beginning of my collecting run of Uncanny X-Men. These weren't the first issues I got, but this is where my collection of issues start. And from 141 up until present, I've, I've got like a 90, 95% uh, complete run of Uncanny. So when, uh, when I was a kid, this was always kind of my holy grail um, of collecting. I'd, I'd heard about this series a lot. Um, my first exposure to it was actually right when I got into to comics. One of the things that brought me into comics was the, the original, the Marvel superheroes role-playing game. I wasn't, I wasn't as big into D&D, but me and my buddies used to play a lot of, uh, a lot of Marvel superheroes. And uh, they had a, a mutant source book. And it was this big old thick book that had all of the, the character profiles and a lot of uh, storylines and backgrounds. And there was like a whole three or four or five pages on Project Wide Awake. And it talked about you know the future where mutants were enslaved and all these characters were slain. And it talked about the storyline that they pulled from the comics. Um, and that just totally, totally grabbed me. And from there, I, I kept searching back, you know, this was before the internet, so you had to kind of hunt everything down and go to the, you know, comic shops or the newsstands and try and find, you know, hints and clues as to where these issues, you know, took place. And um, so eventually I was able to track it down as 141 and 142, and I read it in trade at one point, and, and one year, probably about 10 or 11 years ago, my wife for Chris, for my birthday one year got me, um, went to the local comic shop and actually picked these up off the wall um, and, and bought them for me. So... From that point, I've I've worked backwards and forwards to kind of fill my collection. So this was this is one that kind of has a has a special place for me. I don't know um, if this for, you, for the rest of you guys. How many of you guys are reading it for the first time, and how many how many have read it before? I just read it for the first time. Yeah, same here. First time reading it. Did I, I don't actually read a lot of X Men. Yeah, this is my first time. Uh, I've read some X Men. This is a little bit before my comic reading in general. Um, I was familiar with the story. I heard of it, but I, this is my first time reading it. 
I uh, I read this when it came out. I was a huge, huge fan of the Claremont Byrne and Austin X-Men. Uh, for me, they're pretty much like the pinnacle of X-Men comics in general. I, I mean, I really don't see any other run. I mean, there are some that are really great. I mean, obviously, the Claremont Lee run and you know the Paul Smith run, and they all have their, their um, good points or whatever. But for me, the ultimate... And X-Men are the uh, Claremont Byrne and Austin years. And this was near the end of that. And um, I, actually, Russ, this is near the end of when I started, stopped collecting X-Men. My run starts right around, right around issue 100. But for me, this is like my golden age of X-Men. This is the X-Men that I love. This is the X-Men that I think of when I think of the X-Men. And when I was a little kid reading these as they came out, I, I anxiously awaited every issue. Uh, Byrne and Austin's art in this at the time I mean, no one could touch them. They, I mean, just as detailed and as beautiful and uh, as well done as the art was at the time, there were very few people working at that level of craft at that point in 1981. You said this was traded. Was it just two issues in the trade, or was it part of something else? Or no, I believe it. I believe for a long time they they traded it just as those two. So it was a really thin, you know, trade because and and this was one of the early trades. I mean, this thing's been traded for a long time. It's kind of like the Dark Phoenix saga where it's been it's been traded. You know, constantly. The whole Dark Phoenix saga, the de- the the original je- death of Jean Grey, and uh, Days of Future Past. Um, and like I said, it's just really the high point of the X Men for me, as far as my comic collecting is concerned. Now, this story is shortly after Dark Phoenix, is that right? Yeah, Dark Phoenix ended with one thirty-eight. Dark Phoenix was one twenty-nine to one thirty-eight, and here we pick up one forty-one. So this is kind of this is very shortly, you know, after that happens. Um, and as we'll see going through here, you know, we don't see. Cyclops in this story, he's kind of absent at this point. After after Gene's death, he kind of kind of goes on hiatus for a while and kind of wanders around a bit. And so, Angel kind of stays on as the legacy member of the team. Right, and that also explains they refer to as we get into the book um, when they're in the quote unquote present time. Uh, Kitty's just starting her training, so that because that was of course a storyline where Kitty was recruited into the X Men. Right. So one of the things you know, just kind of starting off with one forty one. The first thing that jumps out, of course, is the cover. Um, to me, I think this is probably, if not the most famous X-Men cover, but one of the one of the most famous covers, I think, of in comics. Um, you know, right away this grabs you. I mean, if, if you hadn't been reading X-Men or you have been reading X-Men, to look at this cover and see, you know, obviously with an aging Wolverine, and at this point you couldn't tell who is you know standing next to him, but but you know a, a close to middle aged type woman, and in the background we see all of the the key members, you know. Uh, past and present of the X-Men, and everyone is pretty much either slain or apprehended. Um, so you're seeing, you know, Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Angel, Iceman, Beast. It looks like, um, at this point, Marvel Girl, um, which was interesting, um, it looks like in the background. And then you see, like, Banshee, and uh, all slain, and then we should, you know, some of them are apprehended, like Storm and, and Sprite, who, you know, is Kitty Pride later becomes uh, Shadowcat. When, when you say the background... When you see the background, you mean right behind uh, Kitty's head next to Wolverine, that one? Right, I right. Th- I thought that was Scarlet Witch, maybe. That could be. That could be. Yeah, you're probably right. What a great cover. I mean, uh, Arthur Soydum recreated this cover for uh, Marvel Zombies, its first go-around. And also, a friend of the uh, Comic Geek Speak podcast, Tom Hodges, the Star Wars artist, um, recreated this cover as an homage on the magazine Star Wars Insider with Obi-Wan standing in front of a wanted poster of Jedis instead of mutants. Right. I think I saw a cover for something. I can't remember what it was. I thought I saw, uh, Tom Durenick did something, a similar homage. I can't remember what it was for, though. Could be wrong on that, though. 
I believe yeah, Andy Kubert did a, um, a Batman homage to this too with the Joker and Harley in front of all the Batman villains that had supposedly been uh, taken out not too uh, long ago as part of the RIP. Even though I didn't read a lot of X-Men, uh, w- when I was younger, I-, I definitely remember this cover. For some reason, it sticks out for me. I- mainly, most of my X-Men knowledge comes from uh, the cartoon in the early 90s and in the movies. Uh, but yeah, I, d- I definitely have seen this many times before. Yeah, they adapted the story in the cartoon, I believe, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that we'll talk about after after the issues, I think, is the is the cartoon series real brief and kind of talk about the differences and how they were able to to pull current comic storylines into the cartoon to kind of make it you know a little more modern and up to date for for the newer audience to to you know kind of give them a feel for for the story as well. These two issues also set up a ton of continuity that plays out later in X Men. Uh, you know, Rachel Summers as Phoenix. Uh, the whole cable, I mean, all the uh, the whole future scenarios that end up later on in other X Men storylines start here, pretty much. Yeah. And would you guys say that um, this is eighty one? You said right. Yes, cover eighty one. So it's it, like very tail end of eighty. So would you say this is almost like the launching point for Wolverine, as like you know the main character that they began to push for X Men, or did it happen previous to this? Because I know after this came all of the like Wolverine miniseries and Wolverine and Kitty Pride and all that stuff that was going on in like the mid eighties. Yeah, yeah, they they really began to spotlight him a lot after after the Dark Phoenix saga. He became more of a key player. Like I said, with kind of Cyclops stepping to the back for a little bit and you know, Storm kind of taking lead of the team, but yeah, they definitely started to branch Wolverine out and I think he started to to come into his own. And it was that yeah, definitely right after this the Miller, you had the Miller Claremont uh, Wolverine Mini, which then crossed back into the um, into the main book for a few issues um, in the in the late 170s, um, and then definitely once they got in, once you know once you get into that mid 80s, then you know Wolverine got his own monthly um, and started kind of popping up here, there, and everywhere. But yeah, it was definitely after this that he he took off big time. Prior to this, he was kind of uh, I guess trying to they were trying to figure out what to do with him. You know, he was just kind of the you know the the you know, the, the feral, you know, type character and, you know, kind of berserker. And, you know, it wasn't really, I think, until Claremont came in and he had that one issue in Dark Phoenix where it was kind of like a, almost like a Wolverine solo issue. And from that point on, yeah, he just, he just kind of rose and never, and never went down. I love the O.J. Simpson ad on page one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was for the, for Dingo Boots. Yeah. That's I, I, that's the first thing I thought of when I was going back and reading these these original issues. I was like, "Ooh, that's kind of funny." So yeah, after we get past the OJ ad, <laughs> starting at the beginning, I mean, right off the bat, when you're reading this, um, you, you can tell something. You know, this is definitely a different time and place. It has a really cool the way they incorporate the uh, the title of the book into the background of like the the decrepit buildings and stuff. Um, they make it look very industrial, and we see this this character. You know, running through, you know, what they describe as, you know, New York, you know, destroyed New York. The city's all tore up. The buildings are all tore up. <clears throat> Character running with a medical, what looks like a medical package and has an M on her, you know, looks like a jumpsuit that, that the character's uh, wearing. And as we read down on the page, we're introduced that this is Kate Pride, not Kitty Pride, um, as she's known in, in current X-Men continuity, but Kate Pride. So right away, this kind of sets us up as, this is a future story, and then, it, it, of course, at the very last of page one, we get welcome to the 21st century. So, um, so we definitely know that that something something's not right here. 
in, in this in this future that we're in. And so we have um, moving on with page two, <clears throat> moving forward, we see that basically um, the older Kate Pride um, is trying to get a device back um, to where she came from, and she gets intercepted by some uh, a gang member called the Rogues, and they start to attack her. And then, of course, Wolverine shows up to, to come to her defense. Apparently, Kitty Pride has become a man in the future. Yeah, I was just going to say, very androgynous-looking uh, uh, Kate Pride. You can really see the level of detail, too, with uh, Burns' art, especially in like the, in the first splash page with the, uh, the um, title uh, worked into the background and all the rubble and uh, everything else. I mean, Byrne is, is known for really think Austin uh, brought out the best in Byrne uh, as far as inking is concerned. I agree. And at this point, it was it was very clear that it was Claremont and Byrne that were co-plotters. You know, you know before before this, and I guess even slightly before the the Dark Phoenix saga, it was pretty much Claremont on writing and Byrne on art. And I, I think after you know during and after the Dark Phoenix saga, it clearly became the you know Kirk, uh, Claremont and Byrne as as co-plotters, which I think in the end ultimately resulted in Byrne leaving the book. But um, which is kind of interesting because I think the same thing kind of happened to Claremont later with. Uh, with Jim Lee, you know, where Lee comes aboard, and this time Claremont, you know, didn't make the cut, and he ended up leaving the book many, many years later. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly rare, though, that someone writes the same characters as long as uh, Chris Claremont did, uh, and to the kind of critical acclaim that he usually had. Usually, you know, writers' styles go come and go. Um, like right now, we're in the middle of the decompression wave with Bendis and... Uh, and the writers like that, but um, I mean, Claremont wrote X Men for what twenty years? Pretty close, yeah. I mean, from the, yeah, almost twenty years from the seventies until until yeah seventy you know seventy three seventy four until um, uh, until ninety ninety one I think ninety one ninety two um, when Lee really kind of took over after they started um, the ad the adjectiveless X Men. <clears throat> then he ended up coming back a little later, but but it was never the same. I mean, after he left this run, um, you know, of over a hundred, you know, almost two hundred issues, it it just was never the same after him coming back. But um, this run he had was just just incredible. But one of the one of the interesting things we find out or, or notice in the story is is you know Kate, she's not using her powers at all. And when we look at page two, you can kind of see at the top left of page two that she has what looks like to be a collar on. So you know, obviously, the the whatever's going on, her powers are being inhibited, and uh, Wolverine comes along to to save the day, just like always. These two pages gave me a very familiar feel to a lot of the a lot of what was going on in the in the movies around this time. Like, I definitely felt a little Planet of the Apes. I definitely felt a little Warriors with the gang member that's dressed up. You know, like those '70s movies with the um. A lot of the science fiction stuff that was going on at that time, this gave me that real vibe, especially her in the green jumpsuit with the collar. I was definitely, you know, my head might be thinking Planet of the Apes because of that Blu-ray box set, but it definitely <laughs> gave me that feel, you know, and the uh, the Indian-looking gang member, you know, the Warriors, which I think came out maybe one or two years prior to this. Even now, you're see, when you ever see a vision of the future, it's always this, this, this punk-influenced, post-apocalyptic style that... I mean, this is you know some thirty years later. Now we're talking, or twenty years later, that it's it's the same thing. Uh, you read DMZ, and it's got the same kind of kind of of New York to it. You know, this everything's destroyed. It's all punk. It's all you know torn apart. So that's just it seems like it's always the way we think. If we think the future is going to be bad, it's going to be like this. 
If it's going to be utopian, it's going to be like Star Trek or whatever. <laughs> it's almost so interesting to see how the future pans out that it is that. It's almost like because underground, because punk movements aren't necessarily mainstream and are in some cases like not the most social of groups, it almost takes like the end of the world to find a new identity. And that search and that idea and that thematically, like that search for identity comes through when absolutely everything else is gone. I think you see that definitely can with DMZ. And I think you see this in some cases um, with like the not tops, dare I say, from Watchmen or um, also with uh, these guys we're looking at right now with X-Men. Yeah, definitely. And as as this story moves on, we'll see even more and more of that. You know, it is kind of... You know, one of those where as this progresses, we'll get we'll get more and more of, of you know what's going on in this world, and we kind of get it a little slowly. But you know, it's interesting. This story takes place over two issues, and you know, nowadays we would get that in. You know, this story would take place in at least six, if not eight or twelve. Um, you know, they would they would drag this thing way out. And here we get you know this very um, tight two issue story that sets things up for a long, long, long time to come. So we find that. Uh, that Wolverine is a part of the Canadian Resistance Army. And it looks like the Sentinels, the rest of the world is watching North America to see what these Sentinels that have taken over are going to do. And the minute they move and spread out from North America and start heading towards Europe, they're going to launch a full-scale nuclear strike. And so, you know, there, there it is. The, it's up to the X-Men to stop them. So we see Wolverine handing over um, a piece to, to a jammer, um, which we'll see how that plays out a little later. And then he's he's off and gone, and uh, then we see Kate back on her her journey back home. Now moving moving on, what's labeled as as, as page five in the issue, we kind of get you know again more glimpses. We see a, a bus, so you know the mode of transportation being pulled by horses. So again, we get this almost digress. You know you know society is degressed or regressed, I, I guess. And, and instead of you know you know, gasoline powered, you know, engines and, and whatnot, we get, you know, horse drawn buses and, uh, you know, other vehicles to, to move um, people around. Notice in the bus, in the interior of the bus, um, we commented she's wearing the M on her uniform indicating a mutant. You see all the people wearing the H and we see that that's, uh, everybody's displaying some kind of identification. In this case, H is they're clean of mutants and, and they're allowed to breed, you know, that even, even uh, procreation is being controlled for fear of uh, creating more new mutants. Yeah, and that they, you know, the the designation of A, you know, for anomalous human or an, a normal person possessing mutant genetic potential. So, you know, they're starting to tag everybody, you know, down to the to the DNA level to figure out, you know, who who's got that, you know, that X factor that's you know waiting to pop. Um, I got know, a very on. very big uh, scarlet letter vibe from using the those tags. Are you kidding? I'm what getting the, uh, I'm getting the. Uh, the Holocaust, you know, with the, the Jews being marked, you know, the same kind of vibe there, because that's really what the mutants are living in. The South Bronx Determined Mutant Center. Determined Center, it's a concentration camp. Yeah. We also find out that the year here is 2013. So, you know, back in 81, this would have been, you know, 33 years. You know, now we're at 2008. We're only five years away from the mutant apocalypse. So get ready. I was also getting flashbacks to seeing the uh, original X-Men movie with the scene with uh, a young Magneto being uh, taken to the concentration camp. And, uh, you know, that that was kind of his motivation in the movie was to prevent that from happening again to the to mutants. And I guess that's always been a theme of the X-Men is that that's the fear of the mutants being, you know, being victims of genocide, basically. And Yeah, uh, this is, yeah it's, it's in this era, really, that this really starts to become a big recurring theme for... for 
for the book. You know, up until now, you know, in the in the Golden Age stuff, they really didn't harp on the whole, you know, world that hates and feared us kind of thing. And, you know, and then it started to kind of come about after, after Claremont took over. But it's really after this and right before this um, that it starts to, to, to really creep up and, and permeate throughout, you know, to the current day. One thing that always... I, for lack of a better word, bothered me about the X-Men and that side of it in general was that, you know, why were the mutants um, ice, uh, isolated like that? You know, you, you know no one uh, went after the Fantastic Four or Daredevil in that way. Sure, they had problems with Daredevil or Spider-Man, but, but only the mutants were targeted with this kind of racial hatred. Uh, and it always bugged me that they were singled out like that because, I mean, what's the difference if, you know, you have power because you're a mutant or because you're hit by cosmic rays? You still have, have abilities. And we see in this story, actually, you know, no one was, was spared. Yeah, exactly. You know, we find that, you know, the, the Sentinels basically had the same epiphany that, you know, all superpowered individuals must go. You know, that the only way, the only way for, you know, for there to be true order and, and to, to prevent, you know, the violence is for, you know, all mutants to be wiped out as well as, you know, altered humans and for them to just absolutely take control even over humans themselves. I think that, like what Ken was talking about, that just seems to be like the one story conceit. I mean, like X-Men are pretty self-contained, but they're still their own corner of the Marvel Universe, you know what I mean? So, like, how many times do the X-Men and the Fantastic Four really mix it up? So I I think that that's just, it's the conceit to the X-Men story specifically, but not to the Marvel Universe as a whole, unless you're dealing with something huge, you know what I mean? It, it was fun reading uh, Civil War when uh, I think it was Wolverine turned to the other heroes like, yeah, not so not so much fun, is it, when you're being targeted yeah. because of your powers, huh? Yeah. Well, the cool thing about the X-Men is, I mean, in the 60s when Stanley and Jack Kirby came uh, out with it, it was a metaphor for the civil rights movement. You know, on the base level, it's a metaphor for the alienation all teenagers feel. And then you can also use it as a metaphor for genocide or um, Auschwitz or things like that. Um, I mean, I've, I'm, it's not original to me that people have always said that Magneto is Malcolm X and Charles Xavier is you know, Martin Luther King. Um, it's just it's a, the the depth of the metaphor is that it applies to so many things, including you know um, the 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 Holocaust and uh, and whatnot. Like I said, it really puts yeah, in I- perspective the the error the 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 eyes you view it in because I've actually never read it with those eyes that about the uh, uh, about the the race like that in that way. I always looked at it as more. Like the, like the Holocaust, things like that. Um, yeah, it just it was an interesting take, and I, and I can see that. Yeah, Xavier is the one who wants to work within the system, and uh, that's the way Martin Luther King wanted to work. And sure. uh, you know, Magneto is the one who wants to work outside the system, you know, by any means necessary. Oh, yeah. A- yeah, perfect metaphor. I actually get it. Yeah, thought it was interesting that that Magneto was in a wheelchair. Also, yeah. Um, just you know, when I not knowing too much of the backstory and what was going on in the X Men in these times. When you see that first panel of, and you just get the back of the wheelchair and you don't know who's sitting in it, you know, my mind eventually went, obviously, to Professor X. And, you know, then you see that it's Magneto. I thought that was interesting, kind of like a full circle type of uh, storytelling. Yeah. The, the Peter right before we see his, his appear with the wheelchair, you already saw Xavier's tombstone next to Ben Grimm in front of Reed Richards, which is, you know, talking about how no one was spared. Uh, but at first I thought, wheelchair, wait, who is this? So is this current setting that we're in, is this vindication of Magneto was right, we should take an aggressive stance toward humanity, or 
because it seems to me that Charles's dreams, uh, the, the the dream is dead. Well, I, I think I was thinking the opposite. I was thinking maybe Magneto is seeing, or maybe they're just coming together from both sides to find a middle. But even Magneto's thinking, well, maybe I was a little overzealous because it's his group that they think sets this whole thing in motion by trying to kill Kelly. Um, it was a brother, his his group, the Brotherhood of Evil Moon, Evil Mutants, although not under his direct leadership, that did this. So he, it's almost like he's thinking, well, I'm not saying I was wrong, but maybe my tactics weren't, weren't, weren't quite right. And the X-Men were like, you know, maybe you weren't trying the same thing. Maybe you, you weren't all wrong, but, you know, we still need to change what happened. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I, I think you can take it either way, you know, but I think it, at this point, it, it you know, they're all in the same boat. And there's only, they know there's only one, you know, one way out. You know, they're all being enslaved. You know, the, you know the, the world basically is on the brink of, or at least North America is on the brink of nuclear annihilation. You know, if the Sentinels spread their wings, which, uh, you know, they're given every indication they, they are, then, you know, all is lost. So this is kind of like, you know, desperation here. You know, all of them, you know, coming together to, to come up with this kooky plan that we'll see un, un, unfold here over the next few pages. But the, the other thing that's interesting with, with this, we see magneto coming in and and getting along with the x-men this is this is kind of a precursor for what we'll see um a few years down the road you know within the next when we get to the mid 80s you know 40 50 issues from now magneto's actually going to come around and you know take over for xavier when he leaves the school um to be healed by the shiar and you know he ends up being you know in the quote good guy role for several years um takes over the, the the school is basically the leader of the new mutants um, and the scene is, is kind of a reformed guy. Um, so this, you know, again, he, this this version of him in the future is a, is almost a precursor for what we're going to see in the in the current storyline um, shortly. And we also see the older Franklin Richards as an adult, and uh, a character that they only refer to as Rachel. They never they never refer to her as Rachel Summers, but you know, obviously they they call her Rachel. She has red hair. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are speculating, and based on her powers. Um, with telepathy as to who, you know, who she really, you know, that she was a relation to the, to, to Scott and Jean. So at this point, there is no, Rachel Summers hasn't been introduced as a character yet. She hasn't been born, if you will, yet. Right. Yeah. Her first appearance is, is in this issue. Um, and in the current timeline, obviously with Jean dead and that, that, you know, that ends up being, uh, when we, when we get to the end of the story, we'll find out that, you know, this is the, this story is the precursor for her coming into you know, current, I guess you call it, you know, 616 continuity. And she has a bit of a freak-out moment when she finds out that at the current timeline that Jean is actually dead, she has a really um, strong reaction to that because in her timeline, you know, Scott and Jean were married, they had a they had a child, and it was her. So after Rachel comes into the 616, she she finds out that Jean is dead, has a very, very negative reaction to that um, because from her timeline, Scott and Jean were married, they had one kid that was her, um, and then she saw them, you know, pretty much all die um, when she was a small child. Um, and in this timeline, Jean is dead. Scott is remarried to Madeline Pryor at that point, and they they will soon have a a uh, son. So once once the baby Nathan is born, even further along, um, it really gets even weirder because she really sees where the timeline she's in and the timeline she came from um, are divergent. Um, and we'll we'll kind of get to a little bit of that later, but but again, you know, just talking about what this sets up for down the road in, in X Men stories. This is where it all this is where a lot of it starts. So we find that uh, the device that Kate was taking was some sort of uh, inhibitor device, um, so that 
they can neutralize the, the jamming on their powers and that Rachel can, her plan is to, to take the older Kate pride and send her back mentally into her younger self so that she can warn them, warn the X-Men of the imminent attack on Senator Kelly. And then hopefully they can, they can prevent that from happening. And then their future will never exist and save all their friends and family um, from that horrible thing ever happening. You know, I was reading this section about how taking away, they were getting their powers back, taking those collars off. Makes me wonder how many issues this this these two page these two issues would have been. Like there'd be like four pages devoted to how these collars work and how they're going to actually get them off. And everything seems to be going quick from point to point to point. You know, it's moving very very fast. And that's just the way it was. You know, these were written back in the uh, back in the eighties. But today, I don't expect them to be. Uh, you know, this can be a four or five issue story. You know, it's just like the Dark Phoenix saga. It was you know essentially nine issues or, or you know ten issues. They they pretty much just used how many ever issues it took to tell whatever story it took. And, you know, they didn't, you know, the whole writing for the trade thing, I think constrains and constricts a lot of the style, you know, you end up having to, you know, spread things out and compress things down, you know, at, at strange places just to make sure they fit into a nice six issue package or, you know, 12 issue package or whatever. And I just, I think it'd be nice to just let the stories flow and, and, you know, they, they work how they work. You know, maybe one trade is seven issues, the next trade is four issues or, you know, eight issues or, you know, whatever. That's really the hallmark of Claremont's writing, though, is that he, he uses a lot of caption boxes, but he does move things along really, really well and really quickly. And there's a lot of information to absorb. Whereas nowadays, I mean, we usually get like three or four panels and maybe, you know, one caption box or, you know, like you were saying with the inhibitor collars. I think that scene with, in one panel where they show uh, Kate Pride walking, you know, uh, across the graveyard and all those uh, tombstones. I mean, that probably would have been a whole issue under Brian Michael Bendis' hand, you know. <laughs> Hey, I had a question about Senator Kelly. Um, it, the full name is Robert F. Kelly, and of course that's dangerously close to um, Robert F. Kennedy with the last couple letters and consonants and whatnot changed in the last name. And I'm remembering the X-Men cartoons, which I had more experience with than the comics, but I remember names like Senator Kelly, Boulevard Trask, um, and in the movie uh, timeline, uh, William Stryker. And I wanted to know, like, does Senator Kelly who starts the whole Registration Act, kind of like the Keene Act and Watchmen, does, does Senator Kelly actually do anything of substance in the X-Men comics politically, or is he just kind of like this red-shirt MacGuffin who is like the linchpin and the keystone for <laughs> the entire world ending or the status quo staying the same? You know what I mean? He's, he's kind of popped... The, I, I think I don't think he acts as that, you know, kind of the MacGuffin. I, I think I think at this time he did. You know, he was kind of the the, the vehicle for for the story, um, and then he popped up, you know, frequently for quite some time. But he ended up, I mean, eventually kind of flipping sides. I think more than once. But you know, for a while came out in favor, kind of being the friend of the mutant, um, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, had a had a change of heart. You know, and and it kind of showed up here and there. So he's kind of changed his tune a little bit, but he's never he's never been kind of. They never really revisited this, I guess, and and kind of made it a recurring thing where oh, if something happens to Senator Kelly, the world is going to die again, or they keep going back to the fact that you know they have to keep him alive. They they never really beat that to death again. I mean, they pretty much use it here, you know, in order you know that they have to save him. But I don't recall that you know happening in the future. 
and if, and if I'm not mistaken, I think several years ago, spoiler, spoiler, um, he, they actually killed him off. I, I think he's dead in the comics as well, just like in the movie. So once we see Rachel teleport the, um, the older Kate Pride, we cut to, you know, again, one of the most, you know, famous scenes in, in X-Men comics is the Danger Room sequence where we see, um, you know, we get a lot of exposition at the top explaining, you know, that, you know, now we're back in 1980 and, you know, we're at the X-Men headquarters and it kind of, you know, talks about how they're in the Danger Room sequence. And, you know, this is, again, like we mentioned earlier, shortly after Kitty um, joins the X-Men. So this is kind of like her first trial, you know, official Danger Room session um, where she's being tested and she, she kind of has a bit of a, a panic attack and, and, you know, is kind of a little bit in awe of seeing the team, um, you know, working together and in this scene and how it all, you know, all comes together. And so we get, you know, a good three, four pages of, you know, what, what, what we see, you know, what we've seen in the past and we'll see in the future is a typical X-Men danger room sequence. You guys keep mentioning the, uh, the decompression writing and, and how this is kind of like the opposite of, of Bendis and everything. This is like anti-Morrison writing. This is like, don't leave anything up to the dummies who are reading. Explain everything to them. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the exposition yeah, I mean, in the thought balloons and in the, you know, the text boxes is like, let's make sure everybody understands exactly what we're doing every step of the way. And that's not a criticism. It's just a, you know, an, uh, an observation that, you know, that style's pretty much gone away, too. Now there's much more you know, mystery in it and trying to let, you know, inference and trying to let the reader figure things out. And I, I think part of that, too, is just, you know, at this time, you know, comic shops were still, I think, a bit of a, a an oddity. I mean, you know, back in the early 80s, you know, they weren't, there weren't a ton of comic shops out there. Most people, I think, were still getting them, getting their books, you know, off the newsstand at the bookstore, um, you know, at the 7-Eleven or the, you know, stop and go or whatever. And, uh, you know, it, it was hard to track back issues down, you know, and I think a lot of this dialogue and all this exposition is just to make sure they keep people in the loop so that they come back and read the next issue so they don't feel so lost. Right, and and yeah. now it's even like they're encouraging you to go find the other stuff. Right. I think a lot of that oh, is, yeah. is the way Marvel does things, or at least Marvel of this time and before. I remember hearing a quote from Stan Lee, every comic is somebody's first comic. So you've got to put something in there, even if it's just one sentence, one line, to explain what's going on. You know, Spider-Man's power came from a spider. You know, uh, Kitty Pryde can face your, face your walls. Wolverine's got adamantium bones. You know, something to, to, get, to get everybody up to speed with where they are. And so you don't have that. You're not guessing. You know who the players are and what they can do or what they are. And you can just enjoy the comic now without having to think too much. And I think that's something that Morrison, especially, and even DC in general, some other ones, sometimes get away from. They think, oh, well, our readers know who all these people are. And, and that's not, not always true. Well, I mean, you know, in fairness, it depends on what the story is, too. Like, I just finished Morrison's first hardcover that came out on Justice League of America. And that's about as pretty, <laughs> I'm going to explain everything as best I can, you know, too. So I, I think it depends on. What, what's editorial looking for as well? Then, of course, we see that Kitty basically passes to her first session where it looks like she's been squashed um, by this crazy danger room-type contraption that always seems to be able to appear out of nowhere. And then um, she phases through, and they all, basically, they're all up in the observation booth and kind of having a good chuckle because they all, you know, thought that, you know, her first time out, she'd be in big trouble. And, you know, basically, the, her, the fact that she can phase through everything 
she just kind of was able to just kind of breeze right through. I love how they even explain how you, know, you think if she can phase through things, why doesn't she just walk fall through the floor? And she's not. She's just stepping on, on the air, basically, which is why she doesn't even fall into the, the trap door. That's just a perfect example of what I just said. They explain everything, even if it's just one panel or one sentence. And, and that's great. I've, I've always wondered why doesn't she just fall through the floor. Now I know. Then, of course, we get the crazy psychedelic acid trippy circles going on and we see that the I thought Morrison wasn't was, right in this one <laughs> Claremont was a man ahead of his time or maybe it was Byrne but this is where the, the, the two the future story and the present story kind of match up at this point where you know this is how we, we know that the older Cape Pride is, is into the younger Kitty and then of course everybody in the control booth sees her fall out and everybody kind of freaks out and uh and uh, Nightcrawler teleports down to go grab her as the rest of them try and scramble. And then they, they take her to the infirmary to, to check her out. It's another, another example where they don't quite believe her, Storm not, not trusting her. They resolve it in, in like the, the next page. That's not, that, that could have been a whole issue right there of, of trying to make Kitty, yeah. trying to make everybody believe her. Yeah. Well, the interesting, the really interesting thing here, um, especially if you've been reading, like if you read Dark Phoenix um, and then read this, is her first reaction after she wakes up is to grab um, Nightcrawler and give him a big old hug. And, you know, he, you know, she's so happy that he's alive and it's really him is because she had a very negative, you know, child, you know, typical kid, you know, when they see something that, you know, they, they don't understand or that they're afraid of, they have a really negative reaction. And she, she's always, since she joined, she had a very apprehensive, you know, negative reaction towards Nightcrawler, not wanting to get too close because he looked very demonic and scary. And so it even surprised Nightcrawler because, you know, he, he's not expecting her to, to take to him so well. They explain that whole scenario in these couple of pages. Um, you know, there is that scene where I think Nightcrawler, is it right after this or right before this, where Nightcrawler is telling Wolverine that, you know, he's not, he's not happy. He's used to regular people not liking him, but he's not used to an, a fellow X-Men not being comfortable with them. Yeah. So again, they kind of wrap up the whole backstory in a real nice, neat, you know, explanation for everybody um, so that yeah, you can right. understand this scene. Yeah, it was right, but it was two pages prior where, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to, to get on Kitty's good side and you can tell she's like, uh, yeah, sure. And you can tell just by the way she's drawn, she's very in close to herself. And then, yeah, that's where they have the exchange afterwards that, um, you know, he's tried to break the ice and, and, and et cetera. So, you know, again, then when we have you know, the older, the older version, you know, come into the younger's body. That, that just takes them totally by surprise. And so then we get the, the, the description from Kate where she convinces them all that they need to get in the jet and head out to go see Professor Xavier because the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who's been missing for quite some time now, um, is going to murder presidential candidate Robert Kelly, along with, with Charles and Moira. So <clears throat> they all quickly jet out to to Washington, D.C., and then, of course, on the way, this is where we really start to flesh out kind of the, the timeline of events and how things um, happen, you know, where we get, you know, they talk about the growing mutant fear and hatred, then in 84, we get this America, it's 1984, do you know what your children are? <clears throat> this is a something that actually, before this storyline happened in the comics, they put this, it was almost like an ad in the comics um, all around the Marvel books around this time to kind of be like a little bit of a promo for, for the storyline. And I think even after that, they did this a little bit where, where they had this, it's, you know, it's 1984, do you know what your children are kind of, kind of thing. But, you know, we get the, the, the Mutant Control Act passed in 84, then we get the Sentinel program and activated, and then they talk about by the turn of the century, 
um, you know, North North America is completely under Sentinel control, and we have the access through, you know, all the heroes, not only the ones that we saw earlier, either through Tombstones or on the cover, but we see, you know, even Iron Man and Spider-Man and the Hulk and Ghost Rider, Black Panther, you know, Daredevil, you know, who's not even a, not even, well, I, I guess somewhat of a mutant because he has heightened senses, but for the most part is just a normal guy. Um, the Vision, you know, all these all these folks are have been wiped out. I'm looking there, it says heroes and villains. I think it, Doom's like the only villain there. Yeah. And Iron Man only really has a fancy suit. But I, I think it's like anybody who fought against them, probably. Like Captain America? I mean, if anything, he'd be on their team. Of course, he'd probably fight against them just like he did against the Registration Act in the Civil War. So anybody who who faced off against them, I guess, was uh, terminated. Yeah. Is this the first time we see the Sentinels, or are they talking oh, no. about... Okay. No, the Sentinels, the Sentinels have been a part of the X-Men since... The single digits, even I think issue nine was like their first first appearance, way back when, and then they kind of disappeared yeah, for a while. Yeah, Kirby created them back in the day. Yeah, and then when Claremont took the run back over pretty early, he kind of reintroduced them, and then they've kind of they've, they've kind of sporadically showed up ever since. I was going to ask you about that. Like, do the Sentinels have the same effect today as they did in the yesteryear of comics? I don't think so. I think they're. I think it's almost either cliched or played out, you know, because it's been, you know, they've basically been using it off and on for 45 years now almost. Um, well, I did like the take that Morrison had on them in his new X-Men run, where mm-hmm. basically the Sentinels were almost like a sentient computer virus that would build themselves from junk. And there was that master mold out in the middle of nowhere. I thought that was a good twist and spin on it. But um, I can't really think of anything other than that that's been done with them lately. Last time I saw them was in, I think, uh, issue one of the Civil War, where they were monitoring the cleanup of Hartford. Sometimes they'll pick up, you know, uh, a couple back issues, flip through them, and, and, and you know, it's one, one of the big reveals, not, not the, you know, page 22, last page splash, but it's like, well, the Sentinels are back again, you know, and it's kind of like a, not, not really topsy-turvy, but how many times can you see this? again and again, but I understand that, you know, the Sentinels are a reflection of fear, paranoia, and everything that's else that's happening in the country at the time, or else why would they be put in? But, you know, then you have other things like during uh, Morrison's run with Cassandra Nova, how she recruited um, one of Trask's um, distant, distant relatives to reactivate, um, like, the, the Master Mold slash Sentinel factory to get it up and, up and rolling again. Yeah, she needed his uh, genetic uh, code or genetic thumbprint or something like that. Someone yeah. from the Trask family line. Yeah, if we're if we're gonna go off on the X Men Morrison run, that'll be a whole another podcast on its own because I'm sure we'll we'll probably come to blows over over that. <laughs> It'll be a couple, I, really. I just not to get too far off topic, but I no, pretty much <laughs> I pretty much despise the Morrison X Men run. I really do. Give me your top three reasons. Um, one, he, he brought, I mean, I, I understand it's, it's, it's supposed to be a school, but the whole mutant explosion thing just really threw me off where there were just mutants everywhere. And, you know, so many characters brought in, I don't know, it just turned me off. It it just was too, a little too widescreen for me. Two is the whole Emma, the, the whole Emma Frost, uh, Scott thing. I, I, I mean, it's still something that's stuck around. I still don't, I don't get it. I don't, it doesn't ring true for me at all. Um, those two getting together, especially in the beginning of while Gene was still alive 
it just it just does not does not ring true with me. Have you seen have you seen have it. you seen Emma? <laughs> outside of point. outside of physical appearance, uh, I, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't ring true for me. Um, and third is the uh, the whole what he did to the whole secondary mutation thing and what they did to Beast and turn him from into more of like a cat, you know, whatever cat. Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he looks like a cat and he's all feline. Oh, awful! Just horrible. Absolutely horrible. I didn't read a lot of X Men. The first I, I picked up Astonishing X Men number one when uh, Joss Whedon started doing that, and that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, what the hell did Whedon do to Beast? And I only found out later on that you know, no, that wasn't Whedon who did that. It was Morrison. Yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, misnomer that it was really Claremont because the first time he actually appeared was in Claremont's Extreme X Men, um, and that was only because Morrison had pretty much already written it in, and Claremont kind of had to shoehorn it in with his story because originally Claremont had Beast in Extreme, and then Morrison had intended to write him into New X Men and you know, kind of came up with that whole secondary mutation and had it all plotted out. So Claremont kind of had to engineer his book to make that work, and then he flipped over to the new X-Men. But, but those, those three are, are among several of the many. You know, it's interesting you uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, Emma's relationship with Scott was one of the things you didn't like, because af- shortly after X-Men 2 uh, came out in the theater, some friends of mine were talking about what they wanted to see for a third one, and we all, like, knew it was going to be something to do with Phoenix, uh, the Phoenix saga. But I'm like, they, what they need to do is, this is perfect. We don't. We don't. Let's not do anything with the the Brotherhood again. Bring in the Hellfire Club. Bring in Emma, and then boom, Gene comes back. Like that would be. I was really looking forward to something like that. Of course, that's not even close to what they did. Well, that third X Men movie though, that was ridiculous. Well, that's what happens when you get rid of the director. He was too busy making a crappy Superman movie. You know, just to, just to rein us back in a little bit here. Um, I'm looking at this page where uh, Colossus is giving the old fastball special with Wolverine. Um, they they really took a lot of the move. The, uh, all three movies have borrowed a lot from this book, huh? Well, the fastball well, yeah, special is like that's fa- that's that's been I think part of X Men for as no, long absolutely, as- absolutely. But this it, it it's so close to what they did in the movie. Yeah, in the da- know, that danger room sequence, especially with the right. Sentinel. Yeah, right. And it's just it's not the first time that you know we've mentioned tonight and and when I was reading it that it, it seemed like. Uh, you know, stuff that were reminded me of the movies. They really seem to borrow a lot from this particular uh, storyline. Yeah, the whole, you know, Senator Kelly, you know, assassination plot, you know, that, that definitely played in, you know, again, the, you know, the danger room sequence, the, you know, the, the, the kicking up the whole mutant fear, you know, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And as John was, was pointing out to, to kind of, to bring it back in, I guess we can, uh, we can, we can expand on our, we can, we can, Go round and round on the Morrison X Men debate at a, at a at a future future X Men podcast on Legion of Dudes. But okay, so so we cut back to the future um, after after Kitty has or Kate I should say has kind of retold the current X Men team of you know what happened to them as well as everybody else in the future and what the assassination of Senator Kelly has has brought on you know humankind. Um, we cut to 2013 again in New York City. Um, where a group of our characters here are underneath the city tunnels, and they are taking the unconscious Kate Pride, whose mind was really switched with the younger version of Kitty, but she is she is currently unconscious. And then we see the demise. This is where we really start to see kind of systematically one by one the demise of of these characters. Where we see, of course, Franklin goes first. Um, he gets blasted by Sentinels, and then they're under attack. Um, 
and we can we can obviously tell here that Storm is going after Rachel and pulling her away. That Rachel and and Franklin, you know, obviously had some sort of relationship together based on her reaction. Um, everybody starts starts to run. They start to attack the Sentinels, and then we get the the ever famous fastball special. So we get a few pages of of again the future fight and um, how the heroes kind of get away. I love that on page 22 in the book where we see Colossus has basically cut his way underneath the building and basically topples the entire building on the Sentinels. I just, I thought that was a really cool uh, panel. I like how Colossus even has gray hair when his hair is metal. Yeah. And then we the, get the, it. The, He's old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, the sound that same panel, it says new for uh, 85 Oldsmobiles. I thought that was the new Oldsmobiles are in. The Oldsmobiles are in early. This Oldsmobiles year. are in early this year. <laughs> uh, we can't do a podcast without a Boost Brothers reference. I love it. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, but then we find um, at the bottom of that page that the Sentinel, basically Mission Control for Sentinel Central, is the Baxter Building, um, and so it's they pretty much the, the remaining heroes decide that they need to make a make a jaunt for the Baxter Building and take them out once and for all. Um, to, to basically save mankind from nuclear annihilation. Then, of course, we cut back to 1980, where we get a shot of the Pentagon, um, and we're introduced to a character named Raven Darkholm, um, working inside the Pentagon. She's actually the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research and Development. So I guess that's the X-Men equivalent of DARPA. And then, of course, we find out that she's really Mystique, um, who has appeared... Here and there, I don't think she's made an actual appearance in the X-Men up until this point, but she's been a character that's appeared several times. Her first appearance is actually in Ms. Marvel number 16, um, written by Claremont and drawn by Cockrum back in 1978. Um, and, and this is something we'll see where Claremont was writer on several books um, other than X-Men for a while, and we'll see from here forward how he'll bring those characters typically into the X-Men books. When he wrote Spider-Woman... Um, Jessica Drew showed up in, in the X-Men for a while, and then after she lost her power, she showed up. Um, the X-Men kind of went out to San Francisco when she became, I guess it was a private investigator for a while. Right. She shows up, and then, of course, um, uh, you know, Dazzler shows up, some of these other characters and, and books that Claremont will you know, go on to write. Almost kind of like you know, a precursor to Peter David, you know, where Peter David will do that when he's writing a particular book and then moves on to another book. He'll, he'll kind of do a lot of cross crossover between the, the books that he's writing. you got to remember, too, that this was the top-selling comic of its time. I mean, the X-Men at this time were really starting to come into their own. They were really starting to become the most popular comic, and Claremont was on the level of, like, a Jeff Johns or, or a Bendis now. So, I mean, obviously, they'd have him write more than one uh, book. Yeah, it's, it's really funny that, um, you know, I've been looking recently, like, at CBR and stuff like that, and they'll go back and do, I think it's... Um, um, John Jackson Miller has his column and he'll go like five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like what the top selling book was that month. And pretty much when you go back up until like really the late, mid, late nineties, it's all X-Men that were, you know, number one. So then at the bottom of 23, we're introduced to the new brotherhood of evil mutants, which for the first time we're getting to see, um, some of these characters had, this is their first appearance. Um, Avalanche, uh, it's, it's the first appearance of Avalanche, Pyro, um, and Destiny. Um, to, Did Avengers Annual number 10 come out after this? Yes. And then just to note, the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants were Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Mastermind, 
the blob and the van oh toad, toad. and magneto right yep yep so blob is the only one that's that's kind of the holdover from the original team and um as we see the the last page the last issue he was busted out of jail um by the team but the interesting character here is is Destiny, who's a blind precog, and one of the one of the interesting things that we'll see with with her moving forward is that it's really highly intimated that that um, Destiny and Mystique are lovers, which at at you know this time in the early '80s and into the mid '80s um, that was a pretty I guess controversial thing, and they never come right out and flat out say it, um, but you know if, as you if you read the book it's it's very clear that that's what's going on between those two characters. Then, of course, we have the, the typical couple few pages of, of the bad guys going on about arguing with each other, and they're preparing their cells, uh, themselves for um, for the plan, and she's getting them all, Mystique is getting them all worked up into what they have to do because Senator Kelly is pretty much um, starting up the beginnings of, of very anti-mutant sentiment and hatred, um, and Xavier is getting ready to speak at the hearings. And then we fast forward and see that we, we arrive at the hearings and um, we get our X-Men heroes in civilian clothing um, showing up um, to try and get Professor Xavier's attention to let him know that they, you know, about Kate and what she's here to do and, and that they need to protect the senator and to make sure that, um, you know, Kate is on the level and that she really is who she says she is. The, the funny thing to mention, if you if you guys look at page 28 in the actual book, it's the fourth panel. Um, it's where there, there's a police officer that's kind of looking looking behind them. There's two characters sitting down in the in the in the audience. One has red hair and looks like freckles, and the other one has like shorter right. uh, dark hair. It's highly uh, suspect suspected that that's supposed to be Jimmy Hilson and Lois Lane. They actually pop up an awful lot in the Marvel comics, and sometimes uh, Clark Kent does too. Like when uh, in Marvels, when uh, Reed and Sue were getting married, um, Lois yeah. Lane and Jimmy Olsen and Clark, and Clark were there, and all, all kinds of good good stuff all over the place. I think it was uh, in Crease Cold War. Maybe there were some direct references to Superman and and uh, Clark Kent or something like that. Yeah, there was something else I was reading recently. I can't remember what it what it was that. That Clark Kent shows up in, and it was a Marvel book, and it was obviously Clark. It was really funny. And then, of course, we get um, on the very last page of 141, we get the the big showdown between the X Men and the Brotherhood of Mutants, and that's how the issue ends. So, obviously, with setup and everything, uh, 141 there's a lot of lot of meat to it. And then we move on to 142. Um, and again, we get another one of these covers that's, you know, pretty famous. You know, it's 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 definitely one of the more well-known X-Men covers, mainly for the fact that you know there's a Sentinel that just blasts Wolverine, and you can tell he's getting pretty shredded up um, on the cover. And then, of course, you get the almost uh, Stanley exclamatory: "This issue, everybody dies." So again, it's one of those. You know, if you see this on the rack, and you're like, "Oh my God, everybody dies!" That, you know, that's crazy. I gotta watch this. Who's <laughs> not gonna buy that? So then starting out with 142, we get, you know, a couple pages, uh, or we get, I guess the first page, we get kind of the re- the rehash of, uh, a little bit of a rehash as to what's going on. You know, it talks about the, the, you know, what's going on currently, what's going on in the future to kind of get you, you know, settled into the story. And of course we get, you know, Kitty Pride as the, as the center of the, of that full plate, uh, that, you know, page one spread or splash. Um, 
you know, kind of being the, the linchpin character between the two, the two time periods at this point. Um, and then we get just this awesome, I love um, page two and three, that top panel, that spread, it's almost like a, that, you know, a top panel spread there where you get the, the brotherhood on the left and the, and the, um, the X-Men on the right and just that widescreen, you know, style. It's just awesome. How, how much do you think that, that, those pages go for, uh, Adam? Well, plenty. Let me tell you, um, a lot of cases, like some collections entirely, like, uh, Kurt Swan stuff has been taken up completely for anything that, you know, may come up. Um, I, I can tell you that the, the burn stuff, uh, goes amazingly fast. Um, we did a quick, um, look on comic art fans before we started up tonight. And someone does have the, the first cover to 141, uh, framed with a few, um, <clears throat> Mystique and Blob uh, pages with the Brotherhood. But you're looking, I mean, <laughs> this is like, uh, well, how much does the Ark of the Covenant cost? It, it doesn't matter when, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, when you look into it, you will lose your soul, um, which I'm sure <laughs> we can all appreciate. But um, I, to put a price tag on this, um, I, if you go back to our last episode, this would be one of those please inquire yeah, <laughs> yeah. Price tags like I can like <laughs> th- that's my best guess, and that's something that I think someone with like a dealer experience would would most would, would be a better uh, suited to to price tag. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't imagine. I love the. I mean, two of my favorite runs. I think Paul Smith is kind of underrated, but two of my favorites are are Burn and Ramita. I think their X Men stuff is just out of this world. So moving on, we get basically what amounts to four pages of of X-Men Brotherhood fight and a lot of banter back and forth. Um, and then Xavier trying to get to safety. And of course you get the typical, um, I think this is like, you know, you know, by page six, we get the typical mystique. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm somebody that's going to you know, think that you're my friend and then, or somebody that can help you. And then of course they transform and it's really mystique. Um, I think that's that's almost like an X Men staple at this point. The, uh, the 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 Mystique disguised as as somebody helpful, or you know one of the team, or you know whatever it is. Whenever Mystique's in in a book, it's always that's always how it ends up being. Have the size of the Sentinels changed much over the years? I'm looking at page seven. Um, I guess it's panel five, and you can see a, a woman there in like a full screen shot standing. Um, I seem to remember Sentinels being bigger more recently, or maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. No, yeah, definitely. There's, I mean, especially when we get into the early 200s, um, like between 200 and 205, there's a couple issues where they fight Sentinels, and they're definitely big. I mean, they're big enough to where, you know, if one of them clamped, you know, in, if if one of them put their fist around, you know, a character, it would it would pretty much almost engulf them. So, yeah, they, they have appeared at many different sizes from time to time. Now I think they're kind of mixed up with that whole O.N.E., you know, the whole post-Civil War initiative thing, and they're just, like, super humongous, and there's actually an operator inside of them. Right. Um, So, yeah, from time to time, I think when they were first introduced, they weren't much bigger than a normal human. But, yeah, they've definitely definitely been represented in various sizes and various shapes um, at different points in time. I know when they first came out, they were really big robots, and then there were other versions later, and they're like Nimrod or whatever, that were more human sized and smaller. So, yeah, and definitely, you know, that's one of the things we'll talk about too that came out of this is the whole Nimrod concept as well. So then, of course, 
Mystique has some sort of knockout gas and Moira and Xavier are now unconscious and then Destiny comes out and, and Mystique is, is trying to get a good beat on, you know, how things are looking for the future. Um, and, and again, Destiny kind of says, well, there's, there's, you know, she can basically, she can't tell the future because there's, there's some sort of anomaly that's, that's taken place. Um, and as we know, that's, that's Kitty Pride. Um, that is that anomaly. So then we get, um, again, we get this whole, you know, um, recap thing, you know, which we wouldn't really see, you know, nowadays any recap would be that kind of that first page of the issue that kind of gives you the rundown of, you know, the top section is, you know, what the book is about. And then the bottom section of that first page, um, you know, it's kind of what's been going on lately kind of thing. Um, and in, in this book we get, you know, basically what amounts to, you know, a page, um, you know, almost a full page to kind of recap, um, you know, what's been going on and how, you know, Kate's been displaced and, you know, what their mission is in the whole nine yards. Um, and it's pretty much taken panel for panel from the previous issue. Um, so again, we've had almost two recaps in the first seven pages of the book, which again, very unusual for today's standards. So then we cut back to the future where the, the, the remaining surviving X-Men are trying to make a, r- a run for the Baxter building and try sneaking around Sentinels to, uh, to get by. And then Storm kind of makes her move and attacks the Sentinel. It's guarding the outside of the Baxter building, um, which allows them to, to get inside. One of the other things that, that I noticed, too, to kind of get back to the whole branding thing, the big M on the, on the jumpsuits that, that they're labeled with, it, it's it's very similar in style to what will you know become with like Bishop, you know where Bishop has it as you know they were literally branded on their face. You know mutants at that time were tattooed right. um, with a big with a big M, and it's in that very you know similar kind of style to to what we're seeing too. And again, Bishop's kind of from that whole alternate future timeline timeline thing as well. The other thing we get on on page eleven is that uh, it looks like Rachel. You know, says I don't. You know, this, and this is this becomes pretty important as well. She says, "I don't know, Colossus. Our world may not change at all. Instead, Kate's actions could create an entirely different timeline, an alternate parallel Earth." So again, this is where we get the concept of the, the future that that Kate come. That this is where they're kind of setting up the fact that yes, Kate may have gone back into her prior younger self, um, but it's possible that either it's created a divergent timeline or that she's gone into a younger version of herself in a parallel timeline. And when Rachel comes to, you know, comes into the, to the normal 616 universe, that definitely plays out that, you know, she's from a different timeline. Either, you know, somehow they've, they've diverged um, at some point. So it's interesting they kind of set that up here. And that wasn't something, um, I mean, I know in D.C. they had the multiple Earths, but, you know, kind of divergent timeline stories, to my knowledge, weren't, a, you know, really big in the Marvel universe at this time. And I think, you know, after that, it kind of gets played out, you know, quite a bit where, you know, you have all these crazy stories that happen and you know, they take place in, you know, weird, you know, alternate timelines and, and things like that. I think that's kind of Marvel's trademark almost instead of, you know, multiple Earths. They just, you know, have these infinite timelines that, that seem to exist everywhere. Yeah, I will say for as much flack as DC um, has received for, you know, any sojourn into the multiverse, like, Marvel has its fair share. I, um, I haven't heard the number 616 in a while just because I'm, you know, not as familiar with Marvel. But, you know, if you look back just to, um, to recent uh, memory and comicdom, 
you had uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four having a crossover slash into with Marvel Zombies. So that's like, <laughs> number one, that's not even the real universe, quote-unquote. It's an alternate universe merging with another alternate universe. Well, wasn't there also an Ultimate Fantastic Four uh, having a crossover with the 616 Fantastic Four? No, the the... I don't believe that happened. It, the the ultimate Fantastic Four is what spawned the whole Marvel Zombies thing, and then the Marvel Zombies ended up coming into the the six one six and the Black Panther. I thought I remember seeing something with uh, with the Fantastic Fours doing some kind of crossover. I thought I remember seeing a solicitation for that a couple of years ago, but I I don't read Fantastic Four, so I wouldn't know for sure. So I made someone here hear me know. And let's not forget about Earth X and uh, the Squadron Supreme Earth, and uh, I'm just those are just off the top of my head. I mean, Marvel oh, yeah. has probably as many as DC. Yeah, Joe, Joe Quesada can say what he wants, but Marvel is is just as I, I don't even think guilty is the right word. I think it's just the way it is. I mean, they've got just as many alternate Earths and timelines and anything as DC has. Pure uh, Raven. More so now. The only real difference is that. Well, uh, I guess I'm asking. It seems like the only real difference is that DC has them cross over and jump into each other's books more often, and Marvel kind of keeps them separate. Well, like, in fairness, since Infinite Crisis with all the multiple Earths, like, we haven't truly, truly, truly met any characters of real consequence in the DCU from the multiverse. All, all the main players in DC, Jason Todd, Power Girl, um, to an extent, Superboy Prime. I mean, these are all characters who really have come from the original Crisis, not the subsequent ones. Well, not Jason Todd. But, like, I think it seems that, like, Marvel has these, like, far-scoping universes that are included into their into their universes, but DC has, like, it's almost concept-driven. Like, okay, Nazi Supergirl... Uh, Earth fifty two complete like or fifty one com- like commandy Earth, so it's almost like storyline versus concept in some cases. Now DC has you know Earth twenty two is Kingdom Come you know or in some cases it's history when Earth two is the traditional Earth two heroes that you know Power Girls just gone into with JSA. I guess Marvel has never had a book that where they went into a, you know, we'll call it, I don't know, a bleed or whatever, and said, look at all of these Marvel worlds. Like, they've never acknowledged that more than one world exists. They just have separate books for them. The Exiles is probably the one that would fit that mold. Um, There's a book called Exiles, and Claremont actually picked up rewriting that. He's been writing it for several years now, and it's kind of that concept where there's a a cast of characters, and and they kind of, they, they... they're made up of different versions of, and it's mainly the X-Men um, characters, and they're made up of different versions of these characters, and they basically, I know the first run of the book, there was a mission they were after, somebody that was going to these different alternate, you know, Earths and doing something, and their mission was to stop them. So there was like a, a group of good guys and a group of bad guys, and they were all almost like Quantum Leap, you know, kind of hopping around to different realities, um, to try and either undo things or fix things, um, and they would hop around to all different. You know, there's, you know, you know, the, they would go to the Age of Apocalypse world. They would go to all these different, you know, 
divergent, you know, the days of future past world, they would go to the, you know, just all these crazy different timelines. And they kind of operated in kind of a bleed-like space um, as well, their, their headquarters, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds kind of like the current Booster Gold stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't read any of it, um, you know, but apparently it's it's more suited, since Claremont's kind of, quote-unquote, come back to um, to writing after kind of being gone from the X-Men and being gone from Marvel for a while. Um, from what I understand, it's kind of more, better suited for his writing style and, and not as maligned as, as when he came back to the X-Men. Um, hey, Russ, we keep we talking can. about events and, and things along that li- and th- those lines. Where does this fit in with Mutant Massacre exactly? As far as time-wise? Yeah. Mutant Massacre was was from 210, basically Uncanny 210, to 213, 214. So this is, so we're 70 issues, so it's about six years from now. Okay. So, so like, so, do we look at Days of the Future Past as, like, the first X-Men event, if you want to call it that? Like, did this would, begat Mutant Massacre, which begat Age of Apocalypse, which begat Onslaught? You know, like, is, is that um, kind of the, what we're looking at here? I would say probably if we're going to look at event, it would probably be Dark Phoenix Saga. That was the first okay. time that a really big, um, epic type story um, really happened. Um, now it was kind of interesting because it wasn't really. I mean, Dark Phoenix wasn't really like Dark. Okay, here's Dark Phoenix Part One and then Part right. Two and Part Three. You know, it, it kind of the story itself kind of evolved and and you know between the time where Gene became Phoenix originally and the quote Dark Phoenix. There was there was stuff going on that kind of alluded to to her powers being a little unstable, um, but yeah, I would say if anything, Dark Phoenix is probably the one that kicked it off. And really, between now, I mean, this is you know, you've you've got you've got Days of Future Past here. Um, there's the Brood Saga, which shows up like in the 150s and 160s, um, but e- but even that wasn't like a huge event kind of thing. There really isn't a big big event thing. Um, I think I think Mutant Massacre is really the kickoff of of Marvel's really big event crossover stuff within its own continuity. I mean, they had Secret Wars, um, and at that point, they even had Secret Wars two. Um, but you know, from for, from a set of books, and at that time, X Men there were there were basically three books. There was there was Uncanny, there was New Mutants, and there was X Factor. Um, and Mutant Massacre was probably the first that actually would cross over into the other books to tell one big cohesive story. Yeah, Dark Phoenix wasn't so much an event as it was just a storyline that ended up playing out into a bigger storyline. Um, it wasn't until after Crisis on Infinite Earths and Secret Wars and things that they really started marketing you know, crossover events like that. Absolutely. Does that answer your question, Adam? Yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around the X-Universe. It's been a while. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big universe. And it's good to be back. I will. I will say this: it's good to be back because, um, well, I I fell victim to onslaught, <laughs> thinking that it was going to be very very awesome. And I will say that that type of crossover mentality and big event that really was 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 like one of the most ridiculous endings, present comics included. That was a yeah. really big turnoff, and I was so I looked at that as such an awesome jumping on point. Because, okay, well, I'll be completely caught up to date. And this is, of course, you know, like my 17, 18-year-old mind working, trying to figure out, you know, wh- where's a good jumping on point. But 
there's a lot to be said, and I am in no way or means a collector of floppies. There's a lot to be said for going back to the well in uh, in tried and true stories, and I really appreciate re- I really appreciated reading this last couple of days. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's it's funny with the X Men you had in the '90s. You had the really good, which in my opinion was the Age of Apocalypse thing. I thought that was a really genius and and a pretty gutsy move for them to yeah. make, where they basically mm-hmm. canceled all their titles for four months um, and really just went, you know, no holds barred, you know, full bore. We're gonna we're gonna do something different. Um, and did it really well to, to onslaught, which then of course we had the whole Heroes Reborn thing, which was just nothing but a um, huge debacle. So that being said, getting back to the book, on the page again, page twelve, thirteen, fourteen, we get several pages of, of battle between the X Men and, and the Brotherhood, um, and again, just from an art standpoint, just really, really good stuff. A lot of um, movement, a lot of motion, you know, a lot of power, um, you know, that, that, that burn is able to, to add to, to these fights between these characters. All right. Help me, help me out here a little bit with, uh, with Wolverine. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking at, I'm looking at 16 and 17 and, and he's having this argument with storm about, you know, I guess being able to kill or not, you know, like how aggressive he's going to be able to be as a part of this team. Uh-huh. Okay, so this is 81. So Hulk 181, the first appearance of Wolverine, is what year, or roughly how many years before this? 74, 75? I didn't know it was that far ahead of this. Okay, so this isn't like, this isn't new territory. Wolverine's been on the X-Men for a while, and he's already had these sort of struggles with him being an anti-hero type of, you know, more aggressive character. You know, this wasn't new territory is what I'm getting at. Well, no, then we no, created the character as a bit, kind of a, a berserker kind of a guy who wasn't quite good or quite bad. That's why the Canadians sent him after the Hulk and that Hulk issue. But the um, he, he was on the shelf for a long, long, long time, and then uh, brought back in um, on, or uh, Giant Size X Men number one. Right. Okay. So how long? I guess what I'm getting at is how long at this point has he been a member of the team? Since basically since Giant Size number one, which was before 93 so basically at this point it's 50 issues so a little over four years he's been a part of of the x-men he's been a, he's been on the team as long as storm nightcrawler colossus okay that uh, you know that whole he came in at the same time and on giant size and he you know in the beginning again it was the same thing he kind of butted heads a lot with cyclops especially over the whole gene um thing because you know it was no secret he was you know secretly in love with gene and, you know, there was even hints that there was some, you know, reciprocation from her. Um, and in the Dark Phoenix storyline, there were, like I said, there's that one issue where um, one of the characters in, uh, in, the, in the Hellfire Club, when they have a fight, can change his mass. And basically Wolverine does something and they, they fall many floors through, um, through this building and he ends up, Wolverine ends up down in the sewers. And they never really show it, but he takes out and kills a lot of the Hellfire Club guards. Um, and it's a very, uh, like I said, one of those is very Wolverine-centric. And it's the first time you really, you know, they always hint and intimate at his character and how, how much of a, you know, a tough guy he is. And that was the issue where you kind of finally saw it unleashed a bit. Um, and we've kind of seen hints of it here and there. But this is really where he, you know, Storm hasn't been in charge of the team for very long. I mean, basically, once Scott left after 
um, you know, the end of Dark Phoenix at 138, Storm has kind of been the de facto leader of the team. So it's only been a few issues. So to me, too, this is where you know, Wolverine doesn't want to be the leader, um, but this is where he's kind of, um, you know, kind of testing authority, I would say. You know, he has a plan to uncover, you know, which of the Nightcrawlers is the real one. And, you know, Storm kind of tells him to hold back and he kind of turns back on her to just kind of um, test her authority. And, and, and she doesn't back down either. And I think he kind of senses, you know, that she's, um, she's got what it takes to be a leader. You know, if she can, if he can, you know, turn it back on her and be aggressive and she not, and she didn't back down and kind of give it back to him, then, you know, he's okay. And he kind of backed off a little bit. So here's, here's another sub question. How does, how does professor Xavier's dream of peaceful coexistence with humans reconcile with the hyper aggressive nature of the better part of his entire team? He put together the new X-Men out of necessity to save the old X-Men when they got uh, attacked by an island-sized mutant uh, back in giant-sized X-Men 1. This phase of Wolverine is like way before he was like the elder statesman of the group, before he was like the teacher Wolverine or whatever. He was still very much chafing under authority. You had the whole Alpha Flight um, storyline earlier on in the Claremont Burn Run where he he basically goes AWOL from his group in Canada and they come back and get try to get him and fight the X-Men for him. So he's very much an anti-authoritarian, not able to work with a group, used to working on his own, used to not taking orders. And through this whole run, um, in this earlier part of his um, career with the X-Men, he's constantly at loggerheads with Cyclops and here with Storm, now that Storm has taken over with Cyclops uh, being gone. Uh, but that's, he grows into the role later on of being more like the teacher and one of the, the leaders of the X-Men groups. At this point, he's still very anti-authoritarian. I think, Adam, to your point, uh, Professor Xavier sees the benefit of having them in that, you know, they're, they're, and we see at the end of this issue, there's good mutants, there's bad mutants, just like there's good, good humans and bad humans. Most of them probably just want to be left alone, you know, but, but not all of them are, are, are working towards, you know, overflow, overthrowing the humans. You know, yeah, we're mutants. Yeah, we're you know, we may have these abilities, but we're not looking to take down humanity. We're looking to protect humanity, and, and I think that's really the way he's looking at it. You know, Wolverine might be the sharp point of the stick, if you will, um, but he's he's also trying to keep him, keep train him to train him, for lack of a better word, keep him and teach him to be uh, to be more aware of that. Because Wolverine probably could just as easily be on uh, with the Brotherhood because of his aggressive nature. Uh, and Xavier probably sees that as well. I also think, Adam, to kind of get to your point a little bit, I think that's where we see when the new mutants come into the to the X universe. Okay. That's that's what kind of balances it a little bit because then Xavier's like, here's a team that I can teach as children. Because think about it, this group, these aren't children. You know, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Wolverine, these aren't children. You know, when he had the original group of X-Men, it was primarily set up to be a school. Yes, they had powers. Yes, he did teach them. But they, they turned into adults. And this team was an, you know, were adults to start with. And when he, he gets into mutants and he focuses more on the school aspect um, of, of things. He doesn't give them, you know, actual costumes of their own design. You know, he makes them wear, you know, uniforms where they all look, you know, they all look the same. You know, focuses on, you know, education more so than, than fighting. Now, granted, they always end up getting into mishaps and misadventures, but the focus on him was to kind of, you know, basically correct the mistakes in the past, is to, to start a school and help these kids actually 
develop their powers and focus on on the good and not not focus on them being a strike force or a, or a militaristic team. And that actually plays out here pretty quick. I mean, it's pretty much the brood saga that, that spawns in the 150s that spawns the new mutants. So they show up within, you know, 12 or two years, you know, story, you know, time-wise from, um, from these stories is when the new mutants start up. Plus Kitty being the only school age girl, uh, um, in the X-Men at this point is wearing the old school, uh, uniform and she's the only one, if you yep. notice. So again, we get more fighting and we see a mystique, um, disguised as Nightcrawler, obviously in those two fighting each other. Um, and then we see more of a, of a, of a pairing up of, um, you know, using some tactics here where we get, you know, Colossus and uh, Wolverine using, you know, a steel beam as a, as a lever to, to move Blob, who supposedly cannot be moved. Um, you, know, you know, it's kind of as cool and silly as the, uh, the, the fastball looked in, in the movie in, in X-Men 3. I can't imagine if they pulled off, tried to pull this, something like this off on, in live action. Yeah, I think, yeah, Beyond Cheesy would probably be a good description. <laughs> But then we see, you know, again that you know this is where the tide is turning, you know, for the the heroes against the against the the brotherhood here, and then we we get on page twenty one we get what what ends up being a revelation that'll come, you know, in and out of X Men storylines for for many years and then ultimately get resolved. But um, there's a high hint here once Nightcrawler sees Mystique change back to herself and he sees her has you know she has blue skin and how kind of has that look like he does. You know, as to who her, you know who she is and what her identity and if there's any connection between the two of them. And of course, Mystique says, "You know, ask your mother, ask Margolizardos, who would know better than she." And Margolizardos is the person that raised Nightcrawler from the, the time he was a small child and and you know raised him in the circus. Um, so this is the first hint that we get that possibly Mystique and Nightcrawler are related. That possibly maybe she's his mother or. Um, you know, possibly a sister or some sort of sibling. Um, and eventually, many, many years later, um, during the, the Chuck Austin run, which, again, there's another run we can we can debate about it with the Morrison run. I, I think it's the only run I hate worse than Morrison um, is Chuck Austin's run. Um, but, yeah, it, big spoiler here, um, it, it's pretty much proved that Mystique is Nightcrawler's mother. Many, you know, some 22, 23 years later. But again, it's one of those things that, you know, again, for the next 22, 23 years, they'll, they'll keep hinting at it in and out, you know, if, if, that's, if that's what's really going on. That's pretty awesome that, you know, we've, we've talked about a few times how quickly this moves along, this two-issue story. But, you know, to drop something like that in there that then ends up being a 22-year topic for the book, you know, it's pretty amazing. And it was, you know, it was one of those things, kind of like Wolverine's past. You know, it was always one of those things where you speculated and you kept waiting and waiting and waiting for it to, you know, for for the resolution for it. And every so often they would, you know, they would just kind of give you little hints and teases. So ultimately, the the ending resolution was not so, um, not so good. Then, of course, moving on to 22, to page 22 in the book, we cut back to 20, to the year 2013, and um, the heroes have made it through the Baxter building up to the basically the main control center of the Sentinels to, to try and take them out. Um, and this is where we see, again, a, a fastball a special with old Colossus and Wolverine, and the Sentinel turns around and totally incinerates Wolverine down to the metal skeleton, which if that was today, he, he, in about give it about an hour, and he'd totally reconstitute himself. They, they've actually done that already in, in Astonishing X-Men. That, that happened. He survived re-entry into a planet and, uh, and regenerated. 
they just did, they did that in the in the Civil War yep. one, um, where he was he was incinerated um, and came back. Which uh, yeah, that's another thing I have issue with right now is Wolverine is they've totally overpowered him. Although I think they've resolved that um, in one of the the last uh, I think poor old man Logan. I think they've resolved that. Um, he no longer can reconstitute himself. Um, he basically say as a result of the whole enemy of the state thing that he was, he basically cheated death and um, was given the ability to come back from, practically come back from death. Um, and I think they've they've since straightened that out um, so that he's back to uh, not being able to come back from you know a single um, you know piece of flesh to basically reconstitute himself with all his memory. I hope. And then, of course, we, we continue the fight, and Storm and Colossus are picking up where Wolverine left off, um, battling the Sentinels. And then, of course, we see Storm is pierced um, through the body from some sort of spear weapon from the Sentinel, and she goes down, and then Colossus freaks out and basically looks like he throws or punches the Sentinel right through the, 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 the building. And then we see Rachel with the still unconscious Kate, um, basically saying that, you know, she's their last hope, that if she, in the past, if she can't fix things, that that basically all hope is lost. And, of course, we cut back to, to 1980, and Kitty Pride is, is keeping an eye, trying to keep an eye on Senator Kelly. She comes across Destiny, who's about to kill Senator Kelly with a crossbow, and Kitty comes in at the last minute and basically phases through her and disrupts her, misses, um, so Senator Kelly is not is not shot. And the minute that they, you know, basically the minute they save Senator Kelly, then store, or, um, Kitty Pride is transported back, you know, back her old self and her new self pretty much um, switch places, um, hopefully to fix the future. Of course, the, she falls somewhat unconscious again. The X-Men show up um, after the... the you know, the villains have, have run off and uh, Storm picks her up um, and they take off. And it looks like most of the Brotherhood has been captured at this point, but Mystique, of course, like always, gets away. And then Daredevil pimps some um, hostess fruit pies. <laughs> Dude, I love those old old uh, hostess fruit pies, ho-hos, Twinkies, and, uh, cupcake ads. Yeah, it really um, brought back some Memories. <laughs> I think if I ever like found stuff, I would totally leave the the cool old ads in there just for nostalgia. You know why he likes those, don't you? No, Adam. Why? He did a blind taste test. <laughs> oh. oh, you did not oh. just do that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> Send your hate mail to Adam <laughs> at Legion of Geese. It's it's pretty funny how um. They're drawn so well and in the comic book style that you can almost start reading the ad and then go, ah, damn it, it's a fruit pie ad. <laughs> yeah, nowadays it would be really, you know, they get some third-rate cheesy artist to, to halfway draw. <laughs> oh, gosh. So then we get the epilogue at, on the last page um, that shows a meeting at the White House. Um, with Senator Kelly, even though he was saved by mutants, he still doesn't trust them and, you know, basically has the opinion that, yes, I was saved by a mutant, but it was a mutant that 
you know, would have killed me in the first place and that, you know, something has to be done. And they bring in um, Sebastian Shaw, who's kind of a big businessman, industrialist type. Um, you know, what these folks don't know is he's also a mutant um, and leader of the Hellfire Club's Inner Circle, which is, um, you know, basically a, a gathering of high-powered, rich mutants in the world. And this is where um, they bring in... the um, they want to restart the Sentinel program. They want to fire it back up again. And then they talk about the operation is codenamed Project Wide Awake, which this will kind of play out a little bit um, moving or quite a bit moving forward. And this is kind of the beginnings of what we're thinking is the, you know, the whole Mutant Registration Act. And this is where Henry Peter Geirich comes in um, to, the, to the X-Men universe. And he'll stick around for quite a while, um, kind of being at the, at the, in the background of this, of this plan. And correct me if I'm wrong, but, Gyrick is kind of like he was the wasn't he the Avengers liaison for a while isn't that wasn't that his big role previously? He was indeed, and yeah. Byrne had a good run on Avengers too, using Gyrick as their uh, their liaison when the Avengers were becoming more of a government sanctioned team. Was he used in the during, uh, in the movies at all too? I I recognize the name, but I don't know that I've ever yeah. read it. Yes, he was. He was. Um, he was in a scene. I think it was when Mystique showed up, and he was on, it, it looked like a marine helicopter. He was, yeah, that's right. He was Kelly's assistant, wasn't he? The, kid, the name. Uh, kind of, yeah. Or they noticed part him. of his he entourage. Yeah, well, he called him Gyrick, and, and yeah, he did show up, and he was disposed of, dis- or dispatched pretty um, abruptly, if I, as I recall. Something's telling me he has a big part in the um, Avengers Initiative books. Yes. Yeah, he does. He's still he's yeah he's still around to this day. For the next several years, he like I said, he kind of shows he's almost kind of like a very villainous kind of guy. Um, you know, the typical government, clandestine, you know, work behind the scenes, black ops type um, type guy that's trying to get this whole Sentinel thing, you know, rolling. He's kind of like the president's right hand man to make sure it happens. And again, this is where it it, it rolls up. So that is the end of the two issues that, you know, the big thing that happens after this, of course, like we talked about is Rachel Summers or who will, we will become to know as Rachel Summers crosses over into this timeline. Um, and there's a, a, an advanced Sentinel called Nimrod that also shows up, who is, is, is like a pink Sentinel human sized robot that, um, has awesome powers. And they, the X-Men end up having many battles with him towards the end of the one ninety into the one nineties. And, and the 200s, um, which is just really, really good stuff. Really, really good stuff. So this ending is kind of like a, um, this epilogue, I should say, it's kind of like a Terminator 3 ending, you know, like it doesn't matter what you do, this is going down anyway? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, and that's kind of the, you know, they kept that going for quite a while with the whole, you know, again, they restarted the Sentinel program, so they start showing up, the whole mutant registration thing, you know, kicks up, then you get all these alternate timeline things going on um, and, and a lot of crossover, you know, there. Um, and in the future, the same thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same thing that, you know, when Bishop shows up, same kind of thing. He comes from a future where mutants were enslaved for a while and then had a big rebellion to, you know, to, to quash it and, and, again, take control of it. So, so yeah, definitely. So this, lastly, just to kind of to touch on briefly, um, the, the X-Men cartoon in the 90s, uh, if, if any of you guys have seen that, which is just really, really good stuff. They really, you know, it kind of took the whole Batman the animated series approach, and it wasn't very dark, 
but it was a lot more adult in tone, I would say, than than previous, you know, Saturday morning cartoon style. Um, they they borrowed a lot from from comic storylines um, to 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 go on the comics in its five seasons. But the way they ended the first season was this whole Days of Future Past, and in that version of it, they used um, Bishop as kind of the the traveler. So instead of having the the older Cape Pride going to the newer Cape Pride. They had Bishop, who was kind of from the future of, you know, Sentinels controlling um, everything and imprisoning everybody to travel back in order to stop um, to stop a traitor from killing Senator Kelly. They kept referring to to you know some basically one of the X Men would betray the team and, and kill Senator Kelly, and um, in the future, you know, Wolverine and Forge were in it, and it was like an older Forge, which was at that time in the, in the cartoon was the first time he showed up. So that was kind of you know cool little Easter egg to see Forge, um, you know, tinkering in his shop and built the basically built the time machine to send Bishop back. So then basically Bishop goes back and and kind of warns them that they have to stop this this. He kind of has a bit of amnesia, doesn't really remember exactly everything that's going on. And then of course Gambit walks in and he he about kills Gambit because he, once he sees him, he sees him as the traitor, um, which is kind of a parallel to what was going on in the comics when Bishop was in, was first inserted. There's a lot of tension between Bishop and Gambit in the actual books, um, where Bishop, again, kind of with fuzzy memory a bit, um, saw Gambit as being the last one to see the X-Men alive and kind of equated him as being a traitor. So that kind of came across in the, in the, in the cartoon as well. Um, and so eventually at the very end of it, um, there's two gambits fighting each other, kind of very similar to what we saw in the book where it was the two night crawlers and they couldn't figure out which was which. Um, and in the comic where Wolverine was going to basically test one to see which one would teleport away as being the real one. Um, Bishop was going to shoot, you know, one of the gambits and then Rogue goes up and takes his little, um, he's got this armband thing on that. That's what anchors him into that time period. And as soon as she takes it off, he travels back to the, Back to the Future, um, the X-Men end up finding out it's Mystique, and they stop her from killing Senator Kelly. But when Bishop gets back, the time the timeline hasn't really changed. You see, um, there's you know the future still kind of destroyed, and you see Wolverine, who, his bones are in a tank. You know, kind of like when we saw where he was blasted. You know, all the flesh was blasted away and left with bones. They showed like a tank in the background, and his bone, you know basically his skeletal remains are floating in, in the tank. Um, so things had changed, but it didn't change completely. And then that's how that story ended. And then in the cartoon, they actually touch back on that a couple more times to kind of finish off that whole story. And they, they bring Apocalypse into it and Cable into it, and it gets all um, really convoluted with a lot of time travel and a lot of future timeline kind of things going on. But very, very well done. I'm waiting for the day desperately when they legitimately put out the 90s X-Men cartoon run on DVD. I guess it's the newer X-Men cartoon that they didn't really put out a set for. They just keep doing, like, a couple of episodes per disc. You know, they'll put out, yeah. like, a volume one and then a volume two. And But I think that's, like, X-Men Evolution or something. That's way after. Yeah, they that, that was actually... It was cheesy in the beginning, and then it got a little better. And actually, uh, Craig Kyle and... What was it? Craig Kyle and Yost, they actually wrote um, new X-Men... Um, not not the Morrison one, but the actual new new X Men Academy X for, and then it, it turned into um, Young X Men now. Um, and then they wrote they actually wrote the uh, Next Avengers uh, the cartoon, 
Um, so they wrote a lot of the X-Men Evolution stuff. And the second, third, and fourth seasons of that were actually pretty decent. It was a lot more kid-friendly. Um, but I think those they've set out in DVDs and, and sets. Like, you can, you can buy them a season at a time um, for those. And then, of course, the one that's starting up soon, the Wolverine and the X-Men, which looks really, really good. I, haven't, I, haven't, I, don't, I don't know that it's broadcast here in the States yet. No, I in Canada, I think. I've, I've seen a couple of those. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, it does, seem, it does seem pretty good. Yeah, it almost seems like it's, it's got a lot of ties to the 90s show. Um, but, but it'd be interesting to see how that, how that pans out. And while we're on the animation, um, topic, I think there's a DVD coming out. It's that Hulk versus, right? And I think, I think one yeah. of them is Hulk versus Wolverine. And I think it's Hulk versus Thor that's also on it. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The Hulk versus Wolverine has a lot of, um, parallels to, to, you know, Hulk 181, you know, that whole first appearance there in the snow. I think, I can't remember if when Digo shows up or not, but, but yeah, it's very, uh, similar to, uh, to, to that, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Very cool. Well, this was good. Anybody? I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you chose it because I haven't read X Men in a long time, and uh, it was nostalgic and cool. So, would you? Get, I mean, do you guys think it, it held up pretty well? I mean, obviously, this story is almost 30 years old now. There, there's a there's a terrifying thought, but uh, <laughs> but how do you think it holds up? I think it holds up real well. It's just as prevalent today. Um, I, like I said, I. Haven't read a lot, but I really enjoy it too. Just like John was saying. Yeah, other than other than the stark differences in the in the writing style from today, you know, I think the story held up fine. It was just so evident about how they, you know, like we were saying about you know how they just make sure they point out everything, but yet it still moved really fast. You know, they pointed out everything, but it was only two issues, so it's kind of like an interesting dynamic. But uh, I thought the story held up really well. Good yeah. Like I said, this is definitely one of my, you know, top five. I would, I would say definitely top five, if not top two, um, X Men stories of all time. I think the Mutant Master definitely is number one for me, above all else, above Dark Phoenix, above anything. That that's my favorite. But this is this is a pretty close second. Like I said, for me, a lot. It's you know, it's where my current collection begins. So it's got a, it's got kind of a, a sentimental value to me as well. Well, I think it says something for it that. You know, so much has come out of it. So many, you know, they've obviously gone back and and pulled things from it to carry storylines on. You know, even today. So it's obviously a very important uh, couple of issues in in the X world. Yeah. Final thoughts? Nope, I don't think so. I guess that that wraps us up. Yeah. Cool deal. Next week is uh, Watchmen Eleven. One minute to midnight. One minute to midnight. Getting close to the end. Don't forget about our, our contest that we're running um, with the Watchmen for uh, Mercury and the Murd um, Collected Edition and the soundtrack. If you email us um, or uh, send an email to read at legionofdudes.com, don't forget, um, with uh, you know, kind of a calling out the dudes moment. You know, if there's something in the Watchmen um, you know, that, that you've picked up that we haven't, um, um, you know, send it on in, and and we'll uh, read. We'll pick the best entry that we receive, and and uh, we'll send out some goodies to to the winner. Cash donations do help. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who is enjoying uh, the Watchmen shows uh, via the half hour wasted feed, we now have the second Watchmen feed. Just to sort of wrap everything up nicely, and if uh, any of our fine listeners want to go to iTunes 
and search Watchmen Movie Podcast, you'll probably find the Legion of Dudes there, and we're looking for positive comments and buzz so we can expand our community of listeners and uh, keep going strong. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we're hoping that you know the separate feed just for the the Watchmen stuff. I think we may end up posting up a couple couple of the one shotted stuff. But with the movie coming up, we really want to 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 be out there and and uh, be prominent um, with that coming up and and get a lot of activity. Yep, and it is known as the uh, Watchmen Movie and Comics Podcast on iTunes. So please leave a a comment for the half hour wasted feed as well. And uh, you know, while you're there. Drop us one over at the Watchmen movie and comics feed. And as always, you can send us an email at comments at legionofdudes.com. You can post um, a response to this particular issue um, or this particular show or any of the other shows that we've done or the Half Hour Wasted shows at thecomicforums.com under the Half Hour Wasted forum there. The Legion of Dudes will be represented at the New York Comic Con this February 7th, 8th, and 9th. And, uh, we, I don't think we have a place to podcast alley, but we will probably be uh, hanging around. Doing a show. We'll be hanging around there. We'll be, we'll be all around. over the floor. Be all over like a hobo on a ham sandwich. So come by and say hi. Definitely, definitely. All right, all right. cool deal. See everybody next week for Watchmen Eleven, and have a happy New Year. Yes. Good night. And a happy Festivus. <laughs>